0: On today's show, a red fern house of middle class, nearly 30-somethings, all grappling with a patchwork of insecure jobs, defining themselves as second-generation Australians, being part of gentrification while somehow feeling like outsiders. Kavita Bedford's debut novel, Friends and Dark Shapes, is a deceptively simple, gently narrated story strung together in telling vignettes that guide the reader through seemingly calm waters that, before you know it, pull you, still lulled into complex issues of race, of class, of colonialism, sex and love, and underlying it all, the great... Gradually rising, dark shape of recent loss.
1: Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the
0: app. Kavita Bedford joins me now to talk about her novel and the craft behind it. Kavita, welcome to Backstory. Hi, thank you so much for having me on and that was such a beautiful introduction. Oh look, I really loved this book. I kind of, I felt like I sort of um, kind of cruised through the book because the way it's been written and you know, I I mean I quite often I'll I'll introduce these segments with a little bit more of a, a retelling of the story or talking about the characters but you know. As with the the books that I feel um, craft is really such a huge part of what makes them extraordinary, I really do want to focus on that right from the beginning. You've written this in a way that I feel uh, is so, I've described it as deceptively simple. You use very clean, clear language. Uh, It's a first person uh, retelling or a first person narrated uh, novel. It's just so beautifully crafted. Can you talk me a little bit about how you approached writing this to get that sort of that real sense of, of simple language and a, a kind of very uh, an ease of storytelling.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think craft is something so intentional and a huge part of what I was focusing on. Um, I was reading at the time a lot of autofiction, and so I was reading a lot of work like by short chapters, you know, really clean chapters work like Jenny Offal, Rachel Cusk at one point, um, Elizabeth Strout as well. And one of the things I was noticing with these women writers was they were writing very clean, crisp, contained pieces where the emotion was so strong, but having that container for it actually allowed for emotion to be better rendered. And because I was dealing with issues about like grief and loss... I really wanted there to be a feeling of short containment and form so that those emotions wouldn't be sort of spilling over. Um, And I think I was also reading a lot of poetry, and that's something that poetry does in this beautiful way where it plays with language and form and, and restraint as well. And for me, for it to be something about grief, loss, suffering, other people's loss, I wanted it to transcend a personal loss, and part of that was, I thought, I was treating it through form um, and playing with that.
0: You've really, you have really achieved that, and so I was really interested in the actual writing of it, how you went about doing that, because you've you've sort of described these these clean, crisp, crisp rather. Tightly uh, written vignettes or chapters. Um, I feel as though each chapter itself feels like a contained short story. You could kind of use, you know, there's so much sort of in each of these very, you know, seemingly light chapters in some way, that I feel like it's been written with the craft of a of a short story writer. It's interesting that you've said that you were sort of, you know, in a sense were thinking about the poet's craft as well. But how did you go about writing these and was it in that sort of way of looking at it as being a self-contained, um, you know, each chapter being more self-contained?
1: Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, I mean, the very first draft of this book was, sprawling vignettes and I was looking to map a city. You know, I had great grand designs Um, and I was looking to map all of Sydney and its suburbs and in each suburb a different chapter would emerge and that's what proved to be really problematic Um, and so the way I found writing into it was yeah, I I went with short form which was a bit of a gamble Um, but it's the sort of stuff that I think I'm reading a lot of, even things like Brian Washington and people who are writing about place. And they're writing in this way that does give that sort of, I guess what I call it is almost like a punchy uh, sort of way of and a descriptor to talk about place and emotion and those linkings between. Um, So I went about writing it then, with this idea that each chapter would be a little bit contained, but there would be something that was opening in it. And as you know, it's got a very gentle arc as a narrative. Um, And in some ways, narrative, although it plays a really important part in all novels, but there's a kind of more internal emotional logic, which is what keeps that book travelling and bouncing. And so, I was looking at those dips and falls and rises in an emotional trajectory... And how to keep these characters going on. Um, And a lot of the stuff around the sort of characters from the share house, I really wanted young people in it also because I wanted a lot of conversation. And for me, vernacular and that kind of daily conversation feels so poetic and actually capturing the way people speak. And we all talk in poetry in everyday ways Mm. so many, you know, so often. um, And I have feel like that year for it, I was thinking about a lot. And I wanted it also because grief is such a layered thing um, and it's not just the you don't just go through the the dark parts of it. There's also a lot of humor in moments and strange dark humor as well as um, moments of lightness and reprieve. And so I wanted those side characters and their conversations and their preoccupations to be also punching out, like in a kind of staccato way, a very different tempo to the more languid, liminal, almost underwater feeling that grief submerges and creates. So I was working a lot with tempos, which is why I was thinking about poetry a lot as well, Mm. um, and how to interject the grief passages and moments with that short, sharp kind of millennial, if you want to call it, but just coming of age moments.
0: Yeah, you've done it really beautifully. I I want to speak to, you know, obviously what you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier, which is the the idea of uh, finding everyday poetry in dialogue. And you've achieved this through not actually interjecting any quotation marks, which is a device that works beautifully in this form. So the... The words of others and the words of the narrator are flowing nicely into each other. Uh, Context obviously makes the voices distinct, but it is still, it adds to the flow of the narrative in this very delightful way so that you are getting that sort of um, poetical sense um, throughout. So I think that that's a really interesting craft point that that I, I started to really notice was having a huge effect. Um, was that hard? Was that difficult to write in a sense? Was that, a, again, something that you had to go over to sort of layer in a little bit?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, it was very intentional. And for me, I had the first draft of the book and when I realised it wasn't working, um, I had a moment where I realised the voice I wanted to write it in. And the minute that that sort of narrator's voice came in, and it's a game, rhythmic, and it has a lot of she said, he said, punctuating it. And I realised it was going to mean that all of the characters' conversations were going to be in the middle of her kind of her presence, so that so that also it wouldn't feel too heavy of just one person's perspective. Um, and because it's about other people's loss as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was <laughs> at moments definitely difficult and I would have to catch myself. And I also was, you know, I, I've been watching a lot of people play with that sort of form, but it did deviate away from using some of the kind of more traditional uh, quotation marks and, you know, having things actually within a uh, sort of sentence. So there's almost these caveats of, you know, well, then he said to the she said. Um yeah so that was something that I did have to layer up a lot and think about a lot once I got the voice
0: This is really, uh, you know, it's such a, there's so much that I want to pick up from what we've just discussed, but I feel like um, let's maybe uh, take a quick break. And if you've just joined us, uh, I'm speaking with Kavita Bedford about her wonderful and debut novel, Friends and Dark Shapes, and an incredibly elegantly written book that, as we've just been discussing, was obviously the work of a lot of uh, thought and planning and You know, pairing back, just such great work. So, Kavita, um, I'm hoping uh, you will stick around after a quick break um, and we can continue talking about your wonderful book. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Kavita, I would love to pick up uh, where we were discussing um, some of the the ways that you were, you know, delving into different aspects of, you know, in in this quite gentle way, um, of really quite powerful subjects. And you talked about the fact that you did use uh, a lot of humour in this book as well as really, you know, having a great deal of emotion and covering some really, um, some really quite depthful issues. And there was one scene that I thought, you know, particularly sort of encapsulated this and and it was uh, the scene where um, the main characters sort of in a a pharmacy, and the worker there is sort of just really dealing with what is very clearly um, microaggressions around race, and um, and the the pair of characters both end up. You know, I think that the narrator just sort of says people are weird, and then both of them sort of you know ease the tension by just. You're laughing um, at the absurdity and awfulness of it. It was just one of those moments where I thought a lot of these, the tension of the underlying sort of examinations of of casual racism, of, of more profound racism, of um, the way Sydney is becoming gentrified, of what that means for Aboriginal people in those areas, all of the things that have been kind of bubbling up suddenly uh, rear up to the surface. And like that, that image that we started out with right at the top of the show um, of the Labrador, the dark shape under the water so- suddenly cresting and um, diffusing things, I felt like this was a similar moment. Can you talk about this? Because you are dealing with very complicated and deep issues in Australia but in a way that, that you know, handles it so accessibly.
1: Oh, thank you. Truly really lovely to hear. Um, yeah, I think, you know, so much of what I was talking about was looking at a city that, like so many cities in the world, but that is changing before our eyes. Um, and, you know, we are living this sort of stage in history where through gentrification and we're also choosing who gets to stay, who has to leave, who's allowed in. And it does feel like walking the streets, you know, in a single day. There are so many levels of loss and aggressions and feeling that someone else took something from you Um, and I think there's so much, you know, I can understand what it feels like to lose something and everyone is feeling this moment of loss, whatever it is, whether it's their home country that they've fled from, whether it's the housings that they feel they were either due or that they had to give up because of money, jobs, partners, lovers for the younger generation in this future that they feel was somehow owed to them. And I really wanted to explore how in such a big city like Sydney, but it could be Melbourne, it could be New York, it could be London, um, how in such a big city there's so much disconnection and so much feeling of someone took something from me. And very rightfully I think I really didn't want to actually have judgment through the book or the narrator to be judging um, and that was sort of the, the gentleness that you talk about I think was a more of a sort of idea that I wanted to just have these ideas there for the reader because in one sense we can all understand that something rightfully people are feeling that something has been taken from them. That is a fair feeling but we're always quantifying or comparing or trying to understand who's lost more or who is maybe responsible for that. And these were things I wanted to explore through things like chemist workers, uh, Uber drivers, people that we meet on this day-to-day level um, in cities that we either don't have the time or the empathy to listen to because we're all feeling it and we're all busy. And I think actually it was really strange, have been talking about it a bit, like writing this or editing this in the last year with COVID, um, where everyone's been feeling that kind of disconnection again and how do you actually reach across that and you know bridge that impasse of of loss and, and is there anyone really to blame um, when we're talking about quite grand structural things as well um, so those were a lot of the ways that i wanted to explore it but without it being didactic um, or journalistic or coming in an imposing way because i think you know and the narrator says this at the moment it feels like everyone's got an opinion and it doesn't seem like adding another opinion to this is the
0: answer. Well, I think I mean it does give these this, uh, ideas space to breathe, which I think, in a lot of ways, puts the uh, impetus on the on the reader to make their own calls on those things, which is a really wonderful experience when you're reading fiction that you're actually being presented with these scenarios and being asked to think about them, which I think is, you know, an incredible um, you know offering in a book. One way you do do this is a device that you use. And you did mention that you'd considered initially making this a sort of, um, you know, a classic love letter, I guess, to Sydney, really delving into each and every area, um, looking at it objectively, looking at it um, subjectively, trying to, to give it its place in this book um, you haven't done that. You've, you've obviously structured it very beautifully within within these vignettes, but you've used a device uh, of the central character being a freelance journalist who is going out and and doing stories within different areas, so that it does fit very neatly into the plot to have these kind of you know zoom out um, observances of particular issues particular areas of the complexities of things that are going on I really love this device was that kind of your your happy compromise with the initial idea and and where you finally ended up
1: Yeah you're super perceptive <laughs> absolutely I needed a I needed the character to have a job that was going to take her to other places. Um, and talking with people from those places, and I think one thing I really, one of the things I really wanted to explore was, um, you know, unlike Melbourne, in a lot of ways, there, there's not a such a vast amount of literature that explores different parts of Sydney. Um, I mean, there's obviously incredible stuff like Gail Jones, Patrick White, you know, uh, Melina Marchetta. Like, there's incredible books about Sydney, but there's not sort of stuff that treats the city as a subject as much, um, or rather I can count them on kind of, you know, one or two hands. Um, and so something I really wanted to do is, because it's quite a segregated city, city and, you know, we don't have the beautiful grid of youth, um, we have this kind of sprawl um, that in some ways people become quite areaist and it, and it can lead to a sort of segregation where you kind of often sort of like, you come from one side of the bridge or the other. And it is really hard to get across, or it is really hard during peak hour traffic to visit that friend so even against one's will or intentions, um, things become a bit more pocketed. So I wanted the narrator to be exploring different parts and facets of Sydney. So it's not just the harbour and it's not just Bondi Beach, which are the things that often get rendered, and not just the beautiful parts. I mean obviously it's a very stunning visual city, but there's in like there's a lot of history in this place and I wanted the character to have that sort of coming of age where she is exploring her youth versus the now, because I also wanted to look at the Sydney of the past and the Sydney of now and look at some of the ideas of there's a gritty history here. There is darkness that resides here. There is this huge push for, you know, a glitzy kind of city with business acumen and corporatization and constantly under construction, constantly being changed and excavated. And beneath that, you know, there's these other ideas going on.
0: And it's so the, you've you've done this beautiful juxtaposition of the central characters are they're young they're sort of middle class uh, they're all sort of or most of them are second generation uh, and still kind of coming to terms with what that means for them and who they are in this city in this country uh, they're also kind of really slightly uncomfortable with their privilege in this uh, in this way where they wear it comfortably or uncomfortably mostly uncomfortably uh, they also are, are constantly sort of um, thinking about, you know, how in a sense they are watching this gentrification, but they're also a part of the gentrification. Mm. You've captured it really perfectly. And I thought there was one line that you um, that you used uh, later in the book that I thought kind of encapsulated some of it, We joke a lot as though we know we're on borrowed time, on borrowed land, but I wonder how can we learn to grieve for ourselves if our country doesn't know how to grieve its own history? It's this classic kind of um, the we" that comes uh, with being people who do care but also don't quite know how to or where they sit on everything. How did you kind of craft this sort of, you know, I I guess it reflects life very accurately for, for a group of people in those positions? Yeah and
1: I think that is something that is so difficult and with right now so much sort of call out culture and so much need to have quick opinions on issues and be across such a diversity of topics where there's where is this room for still grappling with something and still trying to work out how one actually feels or fits into it and I think so many of us are Feeling as if, you know, we're both part of the problem and the solution all at once. And it's a very strange position to feel like you need to have power, but yet you wield power over others. And how to sort of sit in this. And I did quite purposely as well, again, and based on a lot of conversations that I've been, you know, that I've had over the years, I made the characters, especially from the share house, come, like you say, from second generation migrant families, um, but also kind of mixed families and families where, you know, one one of the share house guys, Sammy, you know, he's Palestinian and he sort of says, like, try explaining living in a share house to your Palestinian parents. And I wanted sort of people to also see, you know, these kind of, this second generation is this very different idea going on of what's been inherited and, you know, the shame, the guilt, but also kind of trying to move away from some of that and part of a very modern Australian society and part of, you know, whether it's hipster culture, whether it's middle-class culture, completely imbued in it, yet because you kind of go home and have these family histories and ancestors and people who, you know, have given up, so much for you to have this privilege and then to feel like you're in an area like Redfern, where you're living in someone else's home and you've taken over their privilege. It's a huge complexity. And I think the ideas, you know, and none of it, they're all big issues in and of themselves, but this idea of, you know, understanding that this is indigenous land first and foremost, and then the migrants and issues and people who are coming, and there are so many layers of people who keep coming to this country, and this coexistence and who's taking, again, I'm coming back to this, like what is a home and who's taking what from whom and who has fled from where and what are we trying to do? And I didn't want clear answers because there aren't none at the moment. Um Rather there is just, I think, beneath it a kind of quiet plea for some empathy and understanding and maybe listening and talking to people in your neighbourhood or in places more and actually hearing what they've gone through, I feel is a point of connection.
0: Yes, it's beautifully put. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with Kavita Bedford about her debut novel Friends and Dark Shapes, a beautifully written book that covers a huge range of issues with a great lightness of touch. On that topic and, and to Talk about, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons I really loved this so much is that uh, you are, as you've said, comfortable sitting in the uncomfortable places, the liminal spaces. And there is uh, early on in the book um, one particular element of that where two of the characters are talking about um, being asked to write opinion pieces for a local paper that have somewhat ambiguously ambiguously sort of uh, insinuated that they want pieces from them because they're both brown women. Um, And there's one sort of reflection that, you know, the categorisation of race um, is still very, you know, there's still such an uncomfortable relationship with it in Australia and and quite often it's, you know, uh, this pair are sort of... uh, cynically talking about how they'll profile one particular race over others Um, and uh you know at one point one of the characters observed you're half indian half anglo no one has time for that unless it's some cute buzzfeed piece about being ethnically ambiguous and being hit on by everyone like they always choose one race to focus on when they feel swamped by asians or arabs or and for that matter in time anyone else disappears I think that that is quite an astute observation and one that I've, you know, this kind of nuance about race is still very much lacking in the Australian discourse, this idea that we don't have, uh, you know, we still have so much baggage around racism and we still are such an intrinsically racist society in the most definite of structural ways that we are uncomfortable with dealing with these, these liminalities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um that's huge in between space, and kind of some of the book explores it as well, but, you know, this idea of what we also expect people of colour to talk about. And there is such a huge issue around, you know, and, and also understanding different countries and the politics of other places, but there's kind of this lumping together still that occurs. So some of the book was, and that's also why I chose, you know, characters and I wanted them to be in scenes that were kind of familiar to many Australians, but that weren't sort of typically of what they might think people from these countries do. Um... So, you know, what we want Muslim Arabs to talk about is very, very defined. What we want uh, someone from Somalia to talk about, what we want someone from Iraq or Syria to talk about, and where they're given space in the media. And, um, you know, one of the characters says, like, imagine imagine an Iraqi just giving the, you know, the market news or the economics, or imagine a Somalian face just delivering the day-to-day news. Um, we don't... It's sort of still this desire to hear either the refugee story, the plight, the hardness, the difficulty, or to write something about identity politics. Yeah, um, you have quite limiting.
0: Absolutely. You've even cu- completely directly uh, addressed this in one of the, the scenes. Sorry to cut in on you there. <laughs> Getting no. very excited. Um You know, where you've sort of talked, you know, the the character has gone and interviewed uh, this incredible entrepreneur who has started her own clothing business um, and, uh, you know, um, is from Syria originally or a Syrian uh, asylum seeker originally. Um, And this whole piece is being created about this amazing business she's created. And once uh, the journalist fronts up, um, you know, she's told to change the angle. So it's just explicitly about her being a refugee.
1: Yeah, and people want, you know, all media want pain stories as well, and the stories of the conflict and the stories of the hardship. And, um, you know, I've had this experience myself, and it's it's turning these things where how do you actually talk about the other facets of what makes that human or that culture? And that seems to be something where we still have a way to go to understand not just nuance, but also how fulfilling and whole and colourful and wonderful these places are. And often it feels like the discussions centre around anger or lack or scarcity or fear or fleeing. And it pigeonholes people who come from these places and who are often leading, you know, middle class, like the characters, these middle class lives that are actually quite affluent and where maybe individually haven't faced these issues what what are you allowed to talk about and what aren't you and i think that was so much of what i wanted to explore in the book through these different characters was these ideas of permissions and ideas of silence and that's where the grief comes in as well because it's sort of these ideas of there are very clear things that we are allowed to talk about in this society and there are very clear things that we do not talk about
0: yeah, this, the grief, and I was going to end to, to speak about this particular, this very powerful aspect of the book because really uh, the metaphor of and, and direct sort of um, covering, I guess, of a new loss, uh, the central character has recently lost her father and, and the, the sort of portions of grief gradually drift in more and more to the narrative and before you know it, they're occupying almost half of the space in a way that's both beautiful and, and heartbreaking. Uh, it's really wonderfully woven, but it's always there. It is the dark shape primarily that is drifting beneath um, and poking its head up now and again, along with everyone else's sort of fears and um, and things that they don't want to talk about. Many things work with your metaphors. Uh, can you talk about writing those elements? Because you did say that that was something, you know, that you, you worked quite hard on, learning how to integrate that into the narrative without overwhelming it.
1: Yeah, that was a huge part and decisions around, um, you know, like you sort of said, so much of this book exists in its discussion about liminal, ambiguous in-between spaces and that's completely the space that when you're grieving, you inhabit. You're kind of neither in the past nor in the future. You sort of feel like you're existing in a very... Um, or as the narrator, sometimes you're thinking too much heavily about the past or, you know, but you're not quite in any time realm. And so to get the texture and the feeling of that kind of submerged feeling around grief where you're kind of floating as well through things um, was something that was I really important to write about because I wanted the emotional quality of grief to permeate for the reader, but also to keep a book going <laughs> and to have a book, you know, where you want to turn the page and not just get sunk into a stupor about one emotion um, really needed these, these characters and it needed this arc of this one year in the share house. Um, and it needed these other characters and their lives and what they're going through to kind of keep punching back in to the present. Um, so those were sort of decisions around emotion, texture, rhythm, and uh, the decision for sort of the first third of the book, almost, where the grief isn't really directly mentioned. Um, and it's sort of alluded to, but actually... Then allow the character to drop into it because I think so much of what happens when you're grieving is you do try to keep it at bay through avoidance or through, you know, just pushing and you kind of think I can just get through this loss. Um, And it almost takes that moment of really owning that discomfort and the hurt and what you've actually lost in the world and and mourning it and being okay with grieving it, um, which I wanted for the character for the country for you know for so many elements um what does it mean to just stop and stop trying and striving and own that you've lost and that that's what you also have to deal with and then how to rebuild
0: it's a beautiful note to leave this on but i should say there is this book is it's really it's very gentle in how it brings you to these wonderful kind of realizations or allows you to go through and and feel that you can drift along the surface of this book, enjoying the sharehouse dramas, light-hearted dramas in many ways. That kind of hide the the deeper kind of elements that are going on that gradually creep up on you. It's beautifully done, uh, Kavita. Um, it is a wonderful debut. I certainly debut. I certainly hope to see more from you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you.
1: So much, Mel. It was such a pleasure to be here and really enjoyable to talk with you about it.
0: Thank you. Independently Yours, Triple R 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.